Welcome to Reconciled Church Miami, Pastor Aldo Leon. So I'm going to do something different today. I'm going to read the whole text uh, because normally I go through the text throughout the sermon, but I think today I'm, if, I just, I'm not going to go through the whole text as I preach. So this is, a, this is the longest text I've ever preached, I think. So just when I'm like, when you, when you think in your mind, is he ever going to stop? No, I'm not. All right. So Acts chapter 6, we're preaching through Acts. Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some from the Freedmen Synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexanders, and from Sicilia and Asia, came forward and disputed with Stephen. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and spirit by which he was speaking. Then they persuaded some to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came, dragged him off, and took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, This man does not stop speaking blasphemous word against his holy place and the law. That conversation is still going on right now, by the way. Um, For we heard him say that Jesus, this Nazarene, will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw his face like the face of an angel. So here's Stephen's response. Is this true, the high priest asked? Brothers and fathers, he said, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. And he said to him, get out of your country, away from your relatives, and come to the land that I will show you. Then he came out to the land of the Chaldeans, and he settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move from this land that you now live in. He didn't give him an inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, but he promised to give it to him as a possession and his descendants after him. Even though he was childless, God spoke in this way. His descendants will be strangers in a foreign country. They would enslave and oppress him 400 years. I will judge the nation that they will serve as slaves, God said. And after this, they will come out and worship me in this place. Then he gave the covenant of circumcision. After that, he fathered Isaac and uncircumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac did the same thing with Jacob and Jacob with the 12 patriarchs. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him to Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over all Egypt and his whole household. Then a famine and great suffering came over all Egypt and Canaan, and our ancestors could find no food. When Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors to the first time. The second time, Joseph was revealed to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Joseph then invited his father, Jacob, and all his relatives, 75 people in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt. He found our ancestors. Our ancestors died there. We were carried back to Shechem in the place in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. He's basically preaching the whole Bible, okay? At that time was drawing near to fulfill the promise that God made to Abraham. The people flourished and multiplied in Egypt until a different king who did not know Joseph ruled over Egypt. He dealt deceitfully with our race and oppressed our ancestors by making them leave their infants outside so they wouldn't survive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was cared for in his father's home for three months. And when he was left outside, Pharaoh's daughter adopted and raised him as her own son. So Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptian, and he was powerful in his speech and actions. As he was approaching the age of 40, he decided to visit his brothers, the Israelites, When he saw them being mistreated, he came to the rescue and avenged the oppression by striking down the Egyptian. He assumed his brothers would understand that God would give him deliverance through him, 
but they did not understand. The next day he showed up while they were fighting and tried to reconcile them peacefully, saying, Men, your brothers, why are you mistreating each other? But the one mistreating his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who appointed you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me the same way you killed that Egyptian yesterday? At this disclosure, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he fathered two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw us, he was amazed at the sight he was approaching to look at. The voice of the Lord came, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Moses began to tremble and dared not to look. But the Lord said to him, Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place which you are standing is holy ground. I have observed the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to rescue them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected when they said, Who appointed you a ruler and a judge? This one God sent as a ruler and redeemer by means of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out and performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt at the Red Sea in the wilderness 40 years. This is a Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me among your brothers. Now he's pointing to Jesus, the greater Moses. He is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and our ancestors. He received living oracles to give us. Our ancestors were unliving, unwilling to obey him, but they pushed him away and their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. They even made a calf in those days, offered sacrifice to the idol. They were celebrating what their hands had made. Isn't that us? <laughs> then God turned away and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as is written in the book of the prophets. Prophets, House of Israel, did you really bring me offerings and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness? No, you took up the tent of Molech and the star of your god, Repham, images that you made to worship, so I will deport you beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as who spoke to Moses, commanded him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our ancestors in turn received it, and with Joshua brought it in when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers until the days of David. He found favor in God's sight and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. What sort of house are you going to build for me? Or where is my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? And here's the climax of the sermon. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, so do you. Stephen is gangster, all right? You know, he's a Holy Spirit gangster. Which the prophets did your fathers not persecute. They even killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law on the direction of angles, and you have not kept it. And then they kill him. Um, but I'm going to talk about him getting killed next Sunday. Whole sermon on him getting killed and how he gets killed. So you may be thinking... First of all, why did you do that to us? Second of all, what's the point? Well, you need to know something is wrong and what it smells like to be wrong in order to understand 
what to do right. And so, you know, like, you need to understand that smelling burning in the kitchen is wrong, right? Like, smell something burning, that means there's something wrong. That means I need to do something right to stop the burning. And so, and if you don't know that something smells wrong in a kitchen, what happens? It all gets burned down. So what's the point of this text? The Holy Spirit wrote this story to show us to smell as a church what's wrong, know what smells wrong, spiritually speaking, and then to provide a biblical solution. Okay? So here's the, the I'm going to break it down. What does gospel resistance look like? What does gospel resistance look like? And what does a gospel response look like? So here's the first way we can smell what gospel resistance looks like as a church. They are resistant to biblical correction. So Stephen starts open the Bible with these guys. They start arguing about it, and he ends up dead. Why? Because they didn't want to be corrected about their theology. You see, there's two ways to theology. I'm already proven to be right by God, so I don't need to be right all the time. I need to know the truth so I can grow. But religious opposition to the gospel is not concerned with truth. They want to make everyone feel like they're right. And so they go from place to place to place looking for personal validation. So Christianity for them is not a place to repent and grow and be corrected by God. Christianity is a place for them to be validated in all of their pride of how great they are. So when you hear people absolutely resistant to correction, you're smelling something wrong in the kitchen. Christians should be people that can be corrected for their wrongs as opposed to looking for every place to be religiously proven as right. So gospel resistance looks like a resistance to correction, number one. Number two, it looks like a resistance to being persuaded. So they're going back and forth with the Bible. You know what happens? They stirred up the elders and the scribes, so they dragged him off and took him to the Sanhedrin. They presented false witnesses and said, this man does not stop speaking blasphemous words of the holy place and law. So Stephen's talking theology, and then they just, they just move right to attacking Stephen personally. So religious resistance, you know what happens when we begin to talk theology? They get angry and, and mad, and they just begin to attack the person, and they stop talking about the Bible. And so it looks like this. Instead of us continuing to debate Scripture, you're mean, you're narrow, you're not loving, you're stubborn, you're an idiot, you're wrong. That's, that's, that's how Republicans and Democrats talk to each other, right? You stop reasoning what is true and false, and you say, you're an idiot. You know why you do that? Because you've got nothing to say. And... Religious resistance will stop reasoning from the scriptures and they'll start attacking you personally. This has happened to me so many times. I'm like opening the text with people and we're having dialogue and all of a sudden it's like, you know, Aldo, you're a bad leader. And it's like, it's not about me. It's about what we're talking about here. So religious gospel opposition will move away from reasoning to just being loaded personal attacks. So when you see personal attacks come because you're reading from the scriptures, you know what that smells like? That smells like gospel opposition. That's what it is. They don't, wanna, they don't have nothing to say, so they just begin to talk about it. But here's the third thing that happens. They resist 
distinguishing law from gospel. They resist distinguishing law from gospel. Look at the text. They stir to the people. They say, this man does not speaking blasphemous words against this holy place and law. So here's what Stephen's doing and what the church is doing. They're saying, listen, the law cannot save us. Nothing you ever do to obey God's law can ever justify you. Stephen's saying, and the church is saying, your obedience is secondary to Christ's perfect obedience. Stephen is saying that you are identified primarily and essentially by what Jesus did. And then you know what they say? You're against the law. (laughs) It's almost like this. I'm talking to my son, and in his midst of his disobedience, and I'm affirming that I will always love him, no matter if he obeys or not. And someone sees that dialogue and say, you're against the law in your house. No, no, I'm not. I'm not against the law. And so listen, when the church begins to say, look, what Jesus did saves you. What you do doesn't save you. We distinguish. We don't separate, but we distinguish him. You know what the gospel resistance says? They say you're anti-law. You know why? Because they think that we must combine what Jesus did with what we do in order for us to be biblically faithful. So whenever you hear people say you're anti-law because you're distinguishing what Jesus does from what you do, you know what that smell is? It's not the Holy Spirit. It's not the Bible. It's false resistance. So they resist distinguishing law from gospel. They always want to make the good news your law-keeping and always want to make law-keeping the good news. This is what is going on against Stephen. Here's the last thing I'd say about what resistance looks like before I get into what our response is like. There's a resistance to Christ being the fullness and finality of everything. There is a resistance to Christ being the fullness and the finality of everything. Look what it says in verse 11. He's speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. Verse 14, for we heard him say that Jesus, this Nazarene, will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. So Stephen's saying this. Listen, guys, your temple's great. Your sacrifices are great. Moses is great. But all that is over because Christ is here. And now we're in the point of those things. And they got really mad. You know why? Because gospel resistance loves rituals. They love ceremonies. They love buildings and symbols. But they're not interested in how all those things lead you to Christ being the point. So Moses, he's not against Moses. He's not against the Old Testament. He's saying, guys, the Old Testament leads you to Jesus. And they get very, they don't like that. I was teaching a class in Galatians. Uh, I'm teaching a class in Galatians in the prison. Um, and basically, Galatians is pretty clear. Uh, the whole old covenantal system is over. And a guy got really mad and left the class because he didn't like the fact that I said everything in the Old Testament leads to Jesus. He wanted to stay there in the Old Testament. Um, but th- that's, that's, that's what happens to us when our hearts don't get it. And look, here's a picture that may be helpful. You know what happens a lot of times at birthday parties? In birthday parties, um, the mom and dad get all obsessed with the, the, 
the cake and the design and stuff and whatnot. And you know what happens? They're snapping at the kids because everything's not right. They're ignoring the kids. And so the birthday party that's supposed to be pointing to the kids is not even, doesn't matter. They're all obsessed with the detail of the party because they're all obsessed with how they look good and throwing a party. This is what religious, look, I love ceremonies because, man, I look so good when I do the washing. Oh, I don't want to stop going to the temple to offer sacrifices because I look so super spiritual when I make the sacrifice. But that's wrong, according to Stephen. We don't have to always be stuck in the rituals and signs and symbols because we have Jesus who is the point of the Bible. He's not a pointer. He's the point. He's not a goal. He is the goal. Jesus is where everything in the Bible goes. And once he comes, that's done. And religious resistance gets really angry. Like, come on with all this Jesus stuff. Look at all in the Bible that we're supposed to do. And when you hear that, when you smell that, you know what it is. Religious resistance always wants to go back to the signs and symbols and doesn't want to get to the reality, which is Christ, which is what is going on here. So here's, that's what religious resistance looks like, smells like. What do we do? How do we respond? Here's my next point. What does a gospel response look like? How do we put out the smell of this? Well, first thing I would say is that we tell the grand story. We tell the grand story. So how does, how does Stephen respond to this whole conversation about law and rituals? What do he do? He preaches the entire story of the Bible. He talks about Abraham. God made a promise to dwell with Abraham through his promises. And then he moves to the time of Moses where God radically redeems his people through parting the waters and all these plagues, and he takes them out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land. So God is dwelling with them now in a different way than he was Abraham. He's continuing the story. And then God puts them in the land, and he builds a temple through David. God is now the one who promised to be with, him, promised to be with Abraham the one who's now with the nation of Israel through that exodus, he's now dwelling with the people of God in this place called a temple in Israel. And then Stephen quotes Isaiah, and he says, hey, by the way, Isaiah is saying that this temple is really not the final resting place for God with his people. It's really Christ. So he tells the whole story. And listen, you know, What's problematic about you trying to have a conversation about an email without taking the whole email or previous emails into account? You just take a certain sentence. You know, like, is there, what will be wrong with that? Well, if you don't take into account the whole email, you don't get the whole picture. And so when we see people throwing around Bible verses, throwing around one sentence in the email, we say, listen, if we're going to get this, 
We have to tell the whole story about the Bible because the Bible is not a bunch of disconnected little pithy statements. It is a story. And to us to understand every part, we got to tell the entire story of redemption. The Bible is not a bunch of isolated commands and ideas. It is a narrative about the glory of God developed all through Scripture and culminating in Christ. We preach the story of the Bible. We don't cut and paste, throw little citations. We bring the whole story. We're not throwing leaves at each other. We're showing the big tree and all of its leaves. Let me give you two examples of what this looks like. I'll do one with the whole tongues conversation. And one with the miracles conversation. You ready? Why are you why are y'all laughing? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing what you think I'm gonna do. Like pick on somebody. So you see in Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down, they all speak in other languages. Oh, that Bible verse? It's in the Bible. Therefore, that's what we're gonna do all the time as Christians. They just understood that text without the whole email. Now, what's the whole email of that text? Man always seeks to relate to God by his temples, his achievements, his ascending to God. Babel. Hey, let's build our own temple. Let's be our own saviors and make our own name. God comes down. comes down, that's the irony, to your little cute tower, and he judges them and divides all the nations. Now they can't understand each other. It's like, it's like, all right, let's build a tower. Like, oh, man, we can't build this no more. I don't even know what you're saying. So God divided the nations, confused their languages. So what happens in Pentecost? Where is the story developed? They're like, yo, all you guys are speaking in languages. He's saying, Jesus has reversed Babel. Jesus is the true tower that brings us from earth to heaven. And now God, who distributed the nations and confused them, now he's uniting the nations in the gospel. He is giving us one gospel tongue. Every tribe, tongue, nation, united by the tower of Jesus. That's how they explain the tongues events. That's the point. It's the story that shows us. You want to do the miracle one? You say, you say no, I'm doing it anyways, but I want to act like this is like. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you see healings and stuff in the Bible. People say, <sighs> I was talking to a guy in Miami one time. He's like, I believe all the Bible. If it's in the Bible, I believe it. So he's talking about the whole miraculous this and that. Okay, let's, let's think about the, the happening of miracles in light of the big story. Because we, we do theology with the big story, not cut and paste, you know, like microscopic looking here. A long time ago, Moses gets called, this is in this story, to be, bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And Moses is like, how are they going to believe that I'm really your guy? God says, I will prove you to be your guy by giving you signs and wonders to authenticate you as the guy. 
Okay? So later on, we have a greater Moses. Right? And Jesus is proven to be the Redeemer, the greatest Redeemer, the ultimate Moses, by the signs and wonders that he has. So check it out. Remember when Jesus healed the paralytic? What does Jesus say? So you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I tell you, get up and walk. This miraculous sign is pointing to the fact that I am the point of the story and the world's rescuer. So the sign is about what? It's about the Jesus of the story that it points to, not the sign. Same thing with the bread thing. Yo, Jesus, you're a bread maker, right? What's up? He's like, that's not the point. The signs and miracles of bread point to me being the satisfying savior of your soul. So why don't I give those two examples? We argue about truth from the big story because we don't got agendas. You know why you only take some parts of the story? Because you got an agenda. You know why people look at your email and work and they take two sentences and they run with that? Because I got an agenda, right? We don't have an agenda. So we respond by telling the whole story. So people are like, man, in our, at Reconciled Church, why are you guys always telling the story? Like why every time you talk about something, you're telling the story? Because we don't got an agenda. We want to bring you into the story because that's how we preach truth. We tell the story because this is how we respond to things. Second thing we see here, we start with promises, not prescriptions. So we start with what God has promised, not what he's prescribed for us to do. Look at Stephen does. Brothers and fathers, he said, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. And he said to him, get out of your country from your relatives and come to land I will show you. So here's what's going on. Um, The religious Jews were starting with Moses, right? So they're saying, look, Moses, 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 Moses. And they were starting the conversation about this whole debate and whatnot with Moses. And what does Stephen do? Actually, you, you went, you're about 16 emails ahead. You missed the first one. He starts with Abraham. Now let me read to you why that's important. So, Let's see, how, so let's see how God talks to Abraham. Okay, look, Genesis 12. You ready? We're dancing around the Bible. A lot, bear with me. The Lord said to Abraham, Go out from your land and your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You, you see the I wills? I will make your name great and make you. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you in the clan. And all the peoples in the earth will be blessed through you. So if you don't start with Moses, you start with Abraham, what you get? God relates to sinners, how? By a bunch of one-way promises that have nothing to do with the value of the recipients. So, but look, but, but, if, you, but, but, but if you start the conversation with Moses... This is what it sounds like. So let's, let's, let's start the conversation with Moses. Let's not go to promise and Abraham that was 430 years before Moses. Let's go to Moses. Deuteronomy 11.26. Look. Today I set before you a blessing and a curse. There will be a blessing if you obey these commands of the Lord your God. I am giving you today and a curse if you don't obey the commands of the Lord your God. So this is what they were doing. Don't you see? And Stephen's like, 
uh-uh, you, you, you missed the 16 emails before where God said, I don't relate to you by Moses. You can't be saved by Moses. Moses condemns you and says you need a savior. But from the very beginning of the Bible, God has always said that sinners must relate to God only by his one-way grace promises. That's Genesis 3 and the whole Bible. There is no legalistic salvation in the Bible. Never. So they're like, hey, let's start with us under Moses. And Stephen's like, no, you got to start with Abraham, which basically sets the tone for the Bible that God loves sinners Relates to sinners, is with sinners because of his one-way promises for sinners. So we start with the promise, not the prescriptions. See, the, the, false, the false thinker is always going to start with what you must do. And they always start there. But we see Stephen going all the way back to what God said he would do for sinners by his grace. So first, we tell the whole story. Second, we start with promises, not prescriptions. Third, we identify the point of the story. It says in verse 47, it was Solomon who built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands. As the prophet said, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footsole. What sort of house are you going to build for me? Or where is my resting place? Didn't my hand make all these things? So listen, this is the climax of the sermon. Stephen is saying, you guys are all drunk on Moses and the temple. And if you look at the Bible, God says, I can never ultimately dwell with you in something made by human hands. Okay? So, Jerusalem, sacrifices, Priests, lampstands, curtains, bread, all that stuff was not how God could dwell with us because all things that we made, all those things pointed to that the place where God would be with us as dad would be in a place not made with hands. And you know who that place not made with hands is? It is Jesus conceived by the Holy Spirit as the final dwelling place of God where we're forgiven and God is with us, not in something we have made, but what God has made in Jesus Christ. That is where everything goes. That is where everything goes. Listen, when you're a kid... It's okay to play cop with, like, you know, wood guns and stuff. It's okay, it's okay to play soldier with your fingers, okay? You're rehearsing for adulthood. But once you become an adult, that's done. You need a real pistol, okay? You need real guns. All that rehearsing with these props and kind of symbolic, it's done, okay? That's, that's what Stephen is saying here. Listen. For a time, God needed to rehearse the gospel in the infancy of the church with all of these kind of props and rituals and symbols. But now that Jesus Christ has come, all that kind of infantile prop is done. Jesus Christ is it. Jesus Christ is it. And so but the reason why we don't like that, because 
Listen, the props feed into our pride. Oh, look at me. I'm dieting like they did in the Old Testament. Look at me. You know, I'm, so, I'm observing all these feastable, festival days, right? You know exactly what I'm talking about. This obsession with Israel and the nation of Israel and the temple, you know what's why? Because humans have this major confidence in physical, national, touch-taste things. But Stephen's saying, look, this place, this building, this nation, this country, all points to Jesus, the supreme one, being our confidence and hope. We're not playing church no more like they did in the Old Testament. He is it. He is it. So we identify the point of the story. Once Jesus has come physically into the world, we no longer need all those physical ritual signs. And Well, we have two, water and table, but all the other ones are gone. So here's a, I have two more points. So we, 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 we identify the point of the story. It all goes to Jesus. We don't get stuck. We identify the plot of the story. The plot of the story. So listen, you know what's interesting? Stephen is preaching this. Jesus is the point, not Israel and temples. But at this point, where's, where's the church hanging out? Where are they at? They're still in Jerusalem the whole time. So God, you know, do you remember the great commission that God gave the church? What did he say? Go into all the world and make disciples. And where are they at? Still by the temple, still by the nation of Israel, still in Jerusalem. It's interesting because after Stephen's sermon and his martyrdom, God now moves them from their stuckness in their familiarity to what they're supposed to do, right? And so I I think we tend to be like that. We put God in these boxes. So I'm going to worship God in light of what my social circles allow. Because you don't want to be the weird guy who kind of really breaks out of that social box, right? I'm going to worship God so far as my the way I was raised religiously, if it's unbiblical, how my parents think. I'm going to understand my conception of God in light of my little family box. Or I'm going to understand God in light of my culture and my race. Some of you think about God as, as a Hispanic, and you don't think about God beyond being a Hispanic. And some of you think about God as a white person, and your whole filter about Christianity is through a white person. And so you get stuck in what your culture and race sees about God, and you don't get outside of that box and say, what does God transcendently see about people? We get stuck in, you know, I was raised in this kind of church. So, you know, I was raised in this kind of denomination. So whatever I'm familiar with, that's where I'm going, right? I was raised in a church that sang hymns. So you know what? My conception of Christ-centeredness is always going to be, you know, and that's fine. But some of y'all are like, well, I was raised in a church where they were singing hill songs. So unless I'm going to a place where it's hill song, you know, we get stuck in these comfortable squares of God's familiarity. And God's like, listen, you need to realize that the only place where you find true security, true identity, is where Jesus Christ is exalted, preached, and proclaimed as the point and substance of all reality, wherever it is in the world. It's not in your little boxes of what you're used to. And so what we see here is that 
God is moving the church out of their little domesticated views of what they're familiar about what God is and moving them out to the nations, out of their comfort zone, where Jesus Christ himself is their comforts. So wherever in the nations, in the world, that Jesus Christ is the point, substance, center, and everything, I am at home, not in what I'm used to in my little domesticated Jesus box. Make sense? We point out the plot of the story. And here's the last point I have before I apply some things. We tell the story honestly. We don't have the plot is moving out of our familiarity. We, we, we tell the story honestly. Look at verse 51. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did. Which one of the prophets did your father not persecute? So here's the problem. They think, they think that they're the heroes of the Bible, right? And I think sometimes when I hear Christians process the Bible, you guys act like the heroes of the Bible are the people in the Bible, and you just want to be a hero like them. So every, every sermon, every message is, go be like Joshua the hero, okay? Um, I don't think you've read your Bible if, you, that, if that's what you see in the Bible. Stephen just explains the Bible, and he says, all y'all some villains, no matter how much law God gives you, no matter how much temple, you know, and miraculous experiences, no matter how much kindness, you guys are always the villains of the Bible. You guys always think that you can save yourself. You're always resisting God's deliverance, whether it's Moses, Joshua, Elijah, or now Christ. You guys are the villain of the story, and Jesus is the hero that you need. Y'all need to get right with that. So when we read the Bible, we say, listen, guess what? We are the villains. Christ is the hero, and we got to go to Christ who is the hero. Look, if you ever have a question about having the right values in place, having the right parameters in place and consequences in place can actually make people godly, just read the Old Testament. They had all the parameters, all the guidelines, and they were wretched. And Stephen's like, you the villain, Jesus the hero, stop going back to the Bible, stop going to Moses and acting like he's some sort of like validity to your moral heroics. Heroics, you're not. We're villains. Stiff neck, uncircumcised of hearts. So we see gospel resistance the way we see it, and we respond. We tell the story. We start with promise. We start with how God has always been saying, listen, it's promises, promises, promises of grace. That's how you relate to me. By the time you get to Moses, that's just, I'm bringing Moses into the picture to show you that you really need promises. But I'm not bringing Moses into the picture so you can save yourself. We, get, we, we go to the point. Jesus is the point. And we go to the plot. And then we tell the story accurately. So let me just give a few points of application. Just a few. Listen, if religious resistance looks like opposite correction, we, should, we, we as a church should be so open to correction. I think the problem, look, just watch someone on Facebook talk about theology. Everyone's right about everything all the time. 
well, that's not us. We're over, you know, you know why we're right? Because Jesus lived a perfect life under God's law. He died for all of my unrighteousness. He was raised triumphant, ascended to heaven, and now he's placed me there in that place of he triumphed. I'm right because Jesus was right. I'm not right because I'm right. So guess what? Wrong me. Correct me. Okay? We should be open to correction. We should be growing and not catering to our egos. I one time I was talking to a, as a new believer. As a new believer, I realized that God chooses sinners. We don't choose God. I, 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 by experience. I'm like, There's no way someone like me would ever choose God. I hate God. So as a new believer, I would, you know, I was like, yo, I, I, didn't, I didn't decide this. He did something that enabled me to decide. He gave me a new heart, right? And I was talking with this person in the Bible saying, they're like, but I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that. I'm like, okay. I think this is what the Bible is teaching. And they're like, so you're saying that I'm wrong. And you know more than me. I'm like, is that the point? Is that the point? That's not the point. The point is Jesus is great. And I want to know him. Not, are you saying you're more writer than me? No, that's not the point. We should be open to correction. We should also, if, if gospel resistance looks like resistance to persuade, we should be truth tellers, not personal attackers. You know what I'm saying? When, when you get into a, a theology talk, and then all of a sudden, you just start attacking the person personally, you just lost the conversation. That's, that's what you do when you realize that you don't want to rely on God no more and the Holy Spirit, and you want to take matters in your own hands. You, whatever, right? Beloved, we should not personally attack people. We should persuade people with biblical truth, not persuade them by personal pushing of their, of their you know, personas, right? That happens all the time. Like, you know, I, I, I'm talking with a, another pastor, you know, about um, the whole social justice conversation. And they're like, you're a racist! Really? Really? So because I'm saying it's not our job to save the world, it's our job to call people into the church as the saved. I'm a racist? No, come on, bro. You're not even having the conversation no more. Come on. Stop all that. That's, that's immaturity. We persuade people with biblical reasoning, not personal intimidation. And some of y'all, bro, some of y'all, with what you learn here, y'all attack people personally with what you know. You say, you, you're an idiot. You're a legalist. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Bring truth and let truth persuade them. Don't attack them personally. If gospel resistance looked like failing to distinguish what we do and what God does and mixing those, listen, when people come at you and they say you're anti-law because you're prioritizing grace, you know exactly what that is. Stephen's story is a good example. It's not that you're wrong. It's not that you don't care about God's law. It's that they don't get it yet. Listen, you know what Paul says in Romans chapter 6? What should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? You know why, you know why he said that? Because that's what he was accused of. If no one has accused you of being anti-law, you're probably not preaching the gospel. Because whenever you're preaching the gospel, people will always be confused about that. So we understand what that is. We should be aware of that. Listen, if the gospel is about us telling, if a gospel is about us telling the grand story, 
we should be whole Bible people. What I mean by that? The Bible is not you picking your devotional verse for the day and then saying, that's my spirituality. Beloved, if this is a big story, you're going to be reading the whole story. You know why we preach whole books of the Bible here? And that every, every Sunday it's a new topic? Because I don't need to push my agenda on you. I want to tell God's story. So you should be hearing God's story. You should be wanting to hear God's story. You should be wanting to tell God's story and not get stuck. Look, beloved, I love you. Not get stuck in this cheesy, isolated, devotional culture that we have. I got, I got two minutes for two verses. Beloved, Jesus has revealed his glory in a majestic story. And if you want to really know this God, you've got to get into the story and we've got to preach the story, not our little parts of the email that we like. Hear the story. Tell the story. Fourth, if the Bible starts with promises, not prescriptions, then we need to live our lives in a way that's like that. So, for example, look, look, Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. If I start there, what happens? Love your wife, husband. Why don't you love your wife? What's, what's that going to do? Nothing. How does Ephesians start? How does, how does Ephesians start? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in his sight and love. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. That's how it starts. Promises of God's invincible, unquenchable affection for a sinner that then leads you into the practice. You should be asking as a Christian, what has God promised so I can practice, not starting with the practice for the promise. If a gospel response is identifying Jesus as the point of a story, then we should always be Christ-exalting, leading to people. Listen, if your view of the end times doesn't lead you to Christ-centeredness, that's not a good view of the end times. If your view of sanctification and holiness does not lead to Christ-centeredness, then it's not good. If your view of the Holy Spirit doesn't lead to Christ-centeredness, then it's not good. Why? Because everything needs to lead us to what? Christ. Christ himself. And let me tell you something. I don't, I don't, I don't know if you notice in Miami, but in Miami, there's a lot of Christians who are going back to the Old Testament mosaic thing. Have you, have you, have you guys met people like that? It's really popular. And it's getting more popular. And again, it's, it's failing to let Jesus be the point and end and goal and getting stuck in all the things. Here's the last thing I'd say. If a gospel response is about telling the story honestly, then we need to be honest about ourselves so we can be honest about what grace is. So part of the reason why these people were not getting all of this great stuff about Jesus they were too impressed with themselves, and they didn't get what was wrong in themselves. And so, looking, beloved, I love you. I think one of the problems in this church is that you guys want to hear about grace, but you don't want to hear about how desperately you need grace and how jacked up you can be. And you need to know how needy you are to know how sufficient Jesus is. So, let me pray. 
um, part two about this sermon and how Stephen dies and what that means next week. Father, thank you for, you're just so intriguingly wise. <laughs> you, you show us what's wrong and what's right through an argument that leads to someone's death. And it just, it, there's just so much richness. Father, help us to be like Stephen in the sense that he's all about your story. He lives from your story. He leads from your story. He believes in your story. He tells your story. It's all about your big, grand narrative that we have been written into. Father, help us to understand what the opposition smells like and understand how we bring the wonderful narrative into that opposition. In Jesus' name, amen. That concludes our message, and we hope that you were inspired by it. If you'd like to hear more about the gospel or find out more about Reconciled Church Miami, please connect with us using one of the ways listed on our website, reconciledchurchmiami.org.